1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So you've got to think about when you're thinking about this behavior, I think it's important. You can't just think... Oh, it's a mishandling and some mishandling. I, no, I think Clinton was a mishandling investigation for Trump. I, I think, frankly, I, I think of it much more as there's a this is a, a a case of alleged conspiracy to obstruct, which happens to feature classified information. So it, it's a, if we're going to compare and if we're going to use that comparison as the basis to say why is one charged, why is another not, you have to think about all those shenanigans that you know the more than a year of games playing.
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 7th, 2023. But what about Hillary Clinton's emails? A thousand voices have shouted since the Trump Mar-a-Lago indictment came down. It's not just politicians. It's commentators in serious magazines who seemed to think that Trump's conduct is no different from that of the former Secretary of State. Roger Parloff, writing in Lawfare on June 26th, found 703 different ways in which Trump's Mar-a-Lago conduct bears no resemblance to her emails. And he joined me in the virtual jungle studio to talk about each and every one of them, With him was Pete Strzok, former FBI special agent, who, of course, ran the Hillary Clinton email investigation. He was there to talk about the investigation, how it differed from the Trump Mar-a-Lago investigation, and whether Roger is correct that the two could not be more different. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 7th, but her emails... So Roger, I want to start with your headline. You have a very provocative headline, 703 Ways Trump's Mar-a-Lago Conduct Bears No Resemblance to Hillary Clinton's Emails. That's a very large number. And as the reader of your article will actually figure out pretty quickly, you mean it literally. So let me start by just asking you to explain what this project was and where the number 703 comes from.
2: Yes. Well, I was hearing from Trump and from the other candidates for the Republican candidate for president, everyone was making comparisons to uh, Hillary's emails and the truth was uh, saying that you know the situations were similar. What what Trump had done, his Mar-a-Lago conduct, was basically similar to the Hillary email situation, where the government had decided not to to uh, seek a, a prosecution. And frankly, it was long enough ago that I didn't remember the facts. So I wanted to do a comparison in depth, look at what was known about Hillary's emails and make the comparison. And then this is the result of that inquiry. Of course, the main distinction between the two situations is that with Hillary's emails, the issues were about, had she been reckless? Had she been careless? Had she been, had she committed gross negligence and had that, can that rise to a criminal level? And with Trump, it's completely different. And so I looked at what were the reasons I, uh, that the FBI gave and that the government gave for their non prosecution decision. And then I compared those, uh, the, uh, those factors to the Trump situation. And of course, one of the biggest was that the prosecutors were facing a situation where none of where where hillary said she didn't realize that her emails were contained classified information and in fact none of them were marked none of them were properly marked as classified information if th- they're supposed to have a header or a footer or a uh, clear uh, clear marking as soon as it arrives that and for uh, that it's classified and none of them did uh, which doesn't you know completely excuse her you would think she would uh, use her head and and realize that some of these seem sensitive but if you compare that to to the trump situation you know immediately you have 337 documents that were found in his possession at various times um, that are completely and garishly marked in, you know, loud sleeves, shouting classified, uh, top secret, SCI, all of these other labels, and and so there you get 337. Another key factor that the government found, the the FBI found, and the prosecutors found when they looked at Hillary's, was that, you know. She did not send any of these emails which she said, she, which, which were hard to prove she even knew were classified. She didn't send them outside the government. This was all used for government, proper government purposes. Again, in, in all 337 cases, that's different with Trump. You know, he took all of these documents out of their proper government context and he took them to an unsecure location. He took them home and we know that he did things that had nothing to do with the government. He wait. Well, according to the indictment, he did things with them. So, and so I continued like that, just a comparison of the factors that the FBI used and, and the situation in Hillary's case. And then what do we have in, in, in the, in the, uh, Mar-a-Lago case.
0: All right. So we're going uh, to come back to the question of what are the constituent parts of this number 703, but it's fair to say for present purposes that you started counting individual ways that the two situations were different and how many documents they apply to. Is that, is that fair? That's right.
2: With the two factors being, is it worthy of prosecution and is it prosecutable? Is it, can you prove it? And, 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 and yeah, those two factors.
0: All right. So Pete, uh, this is like my Woody Allen and Marshall McLuhan moment. I happen to have the guy who did the Hillary Clinton (laughs) email investigation right here. Uh, We're going to pull Pete Struck out from behind uh, a big sign. And let me start by everybody always asks you about the Russia investigation and you know the, the coup you tried to perpetrate against the lawfully elected president. But uh, before you did that, you were responsible for the FBI's investigation of uh, the then former Secretary of State. I guess she's still the former Secretary of State. Give us a little overview of your role in the Hillary Clinton email investigation, which was, of course, known as mid-year exam.
1: Sure. So the case was opened, gosh, i going back a long time now. So it was the late summer, fall of 2015, and the U.S. Intelligence Community Inspector General sent a referral to the FBI that they had seen what they believed to be classified information in a body of email that former Secretary Clinton had provided both to them, as well as potentially Congress, in response to both the subpoena and a demand for documents on the part of the Benghazi committee, I think, as well as an a FOIA request that the state Department was processing, so they saw what they believed in this, and you know they saw what they believed to be classified information within her unclassified emails and referred that to the FBI the FBI opened a case. Uh, probably within about the first month or so realized, and they opened it up at headquarters, not at any field office, and realized fairly quickly that it was likely that they would need additional investigation and certainly the involvement of, a US, of prosecutors, of a U.S. attorney's office, to be able to obtain subpoenas and other process and you know start engaging with uh, attorneys on the other side to obtain information and do investigation. So I was brought in at that time. Led it with a partner who was an analyst um, starting in the fall of 2015 until we concluded the first time around, uh, concluded the case in early July 2016, which most people remember Director Comey's speech on July 5th, much to the you know <laughs> continuing agita of a lot of people in this country. The case was later reopened in the fall when emails were discovered resident on Anthony Weiner's laptop. And again, was publicly made known despite these, you know, coup plotting allegations. The those people who make those allegations had absolutely no problem whatsoever with either the FBI investigating Hillary Clinton and or the FBI reopening the case in late in the fall of 2016. But be that as it may, in those roughly, mm, you know, I'd guess a little less, what is this, A little less than 12 months, uh, the Bureau went about three broad tracks in the investigation. The first was to determine all of the classified information that appeared in the emails, uh, you know, wherever it was, wherever it lay, whether it was in Clinton's data systems, whether it was on US government systems, whether it was on, you know, private email providers like Gmail or somewhere else. The second sort of tack or, or sort of large thrust of the investigation was to figure out who had introduced that classified information, why they did it, what they knew about what they were doing. Um, their intention and motivation behind it and sort of all the circumstances of how it came to be placed there. And then the third thrust or the third focus of the investigation was to figure out whether or not any of that information had been compromised, whether a foreign power had obtained it, whether a hacker had obtained it, whether or not there was any risk to sources and methods or anything that needed to be done to uh, protect U.S. national security. So those were the three broad paths. Uh, And again, you know, wrapped up, you know, we had a, very good idea. By the end of the investigation, exactly uh, all of the classified information that had appeared, uh, as well as the reasons behind why people had put it in there. You know, I agree with Roger entirely that it was you know we found done for a legitimate purpose, that it was consistent with trying to do State Department business, that there was nothing there other than you know people trying to do their jobs, and for a variety of factors from unclear State Department policy to antiquated State Department IT systems to any number of other things, there was not any sort of willful willful, bad intent in that. And then, you know, as far as the, you know, any sort of uh, hacking or, 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 you know, foreign obtaining of that information, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, certainly, you know, as Director Comey, and I'd refer everybody, I mean, you know, Roger's piece is excellent. But, you know, again, regardless of what you think of the fact of Director Comey giving that speech, the content of the speech on July 5th is really, really excellent in terms of laying out what we did, laying out the reasoning behind his recommendation not to recommend charges, it's very thorough and it still resonates today. And it's very, very helpful in understanding, certainly as we look now at Trump and the documents at Mar-a-Lago, it provides a very useful sort of structure to think about whether or not the Department of Justice should charge Trump or not, whether the Department of Justice should or should not have charged Hillary Clinton. And I think, you know, consistent with what Roger found, you know the answer is in Clinton's case, no. It was it was not appropriate to bring charges, and in the case of Trump and Mar-a-Lago, absolutely without question, his behavior beyond any reasonable doubt of any prosecutor. The answer is yes, absolutely should have been charged by the facts as we understand them from the uh, from the indictment and from media reporting.
0: All right, so I want to break that down, that conclusion which you both share down. According to the rubric that Roger set out in the piece, now for for those listeners who have not read the piece, there's a lot more to the piece than this rubric, and I do refer you to the whole thing. There's a lot of history of the investigation itself. Uh, there's a lot of uh, stuff that we you, will just trigger memory for you of the various uh, components and aspects of this investigation that we may not discuss today. Want to focus today on the comparison between the findings of the investigations in that case and in apparently in Trump's Mar-a-Lago case. But before we do it, I just want to clarify with you, Pete, that you were actually the person who interviewed Hillary Clinton to close out this investigation, right?
1: Well, I was one of several folks in the room. The primary people doing the interview were the two um, lead case agents. But then, you know, I was there as their supervisor. DOJ had uh, five attorneys in there. But but yes, yeah, so I was I was present and that I think it was July 3rd. It was over the 4th of July weekend when uh, Secretary Clinton came into FBI headquarters and we interviewed her there.
0: All right. Finally, I want to make one preparatory observation here, which is for purposes of this conversation, we're going to do something that we almost never do on Lawfare, which is we're going to assume. <laughs> oh, no, no, that that one's common. Um, we're going to assume uh, we're not going to presume innocence of either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. We are going to presume that every investigative finding is accurate. So we're going to essentially do the opposite if. If the FBI found X about Hillary Clinton, uh, we're going to assume that that's right. She will never get an opportunity to prove otherwise. In Trump's case, we're also going to assume that the investigative findings are true. Of course, he will get a chance to prove uh, a reasonable doubt about them and will have a presumption of innocence in court. But for present purposes, if, if, you're, if you're comparing people's conduct, you have to have a stable basis for the conduct, for what the conduct was. The only basis we have in both cases is the prosecutorial and investigative allegations. So we're just going to assume the record true. All right. I want to start with a point that Roger made. And Roger, why don't you walk us through this? which is the question of classification markings. You you alluded to this point above, but I want you to walk us through it. What did Pete and his colleagues find with respect to the emails that were classified on Clinton's server? And what does the indictment allege in the Trump case?
2: Yeah, the finding was that Eventually, I guess I should say that, you know, they did look through 30,000 emails that uh, Hillary turned over. And then during the course of the investigation from various different forensic techniques and investigative techniques, they recovered another 17,000, which did not mean that she was hiding those 17,000 for various reasons. And when they... look through them all, they did find 81 email chains that contained information that was judged to be classified. And in no case were those properly marked so that any reader would instantly know, be careful, this is classified. And the, the, the way that seemed to bubble up was that the investigators interviewed 72 people and that included the lower down State Department employees who it were needed to get this information up the chain, and and they felt that for various reasons, operational tempo they cited they they couldn't use or, or the, the classified uh, systems that were available uh, that were down or or unavailable, and so they would e- make an effort to avoid. To you know, to, to speak in general terms and avoid giving away the secrets, and they would forward that to the sort of the first line of of uh, Hillary's aides, her top aides, and they might forward the messages to her, and so. Nothing was marked. And by the time it got to her, her assumption was, well, the people lower down know what they're doing. At least this is how the investigators understood it. This is how her rather high-ranking people understood it, people like Jake Sullivan and Cheryl Mills and uh, Heather Samuelson and Huma Abedin. And, of course, as I've mentioned, there's just no remote comparison in, in the Trump case. All of these things are are marked unmistakably. And and the government alleges that Trump was involved in packing his boxes from the start. And and so it's hard to believe that you would miss 337 of these uh, brightly marked sleeves saying classified information.
0: All right. So, Pete, talk to me about this. My first reaction when I Read Rogers, hey, this stuff wasn't properly marked. Was wait a minute, I'm not sure that's an argument that cuts in Clinton's favor. You know, in some cases, they stripped out classified markings from the material. Why shouldn't I look at this as evidence that, you know, they were so reckless with classified material that they didn't even bother to? Uh, keep a note on it, keep the, the, the portion markings on it?
1: Well, that's a, it's a good question. There are a lot of different aspects to the answer. Certainly there's the case that, you know, there were some at the lowest level, at the confidential level, which is the lowest level of uh, classified information where you have confidential secret and top secret as uh, defined by executive order. There were some, and while Roger's absolutely right, there were no documents that had, but traditionally are are Appropriate classification markings, right? You add a header and a footer on each page. You have portion markings, which either at the beginning or end of each paragraph, you'll we'll get a little abbreviation that tells you the, the classification level and any sort of caveats or handling uh, controls uh, on that particular paragraph those weren't present. In a a few cases, there were some C's, uh, which is traditionally used for the confidential level. You know, one of the things that I think all of us and I to this day are a little bit skeptical about is, you know, Secretary Clinton maintained uh, steadfastly that she thought that was, you know, a third item on a list like A, then B, then C. And, you know, whether, you know, she said that, I, I have a little bit of skepticism, but certainly don't believe, you know, she was sitting there, you know, necessarily lying to us, but of greater importance, not only beyond the fact that DOJ historically doesn't charge any sort of mishandling cases based on confidential information because of the low level of uh, expected damage or reasonable belief of damage to national security. The other thing is, in a couple, at least a couple of those cases, the material is overclassified at the confidential level. You know, it was not even confidential. It turned out because everything that we found that might be classified, every single email. We sent out to the owning organization, right? If it was information that originated from the State Department, the CIA or the White House or NSA or wherever the case may be, sent all of these emails out.
0: And you did this just to be clear, to verify that the material was really classified.
1: Correct. Yeah. I mean, we were super, you know, and that's the other thing that gets me. I mean, I, you know, we were super aggressive and, you know, in particular, the FBI, in particular me. And, I, you know, that was one of the things that Horowitz found that, you know, the in many cases, the FBI was kind of dragging along uh, DOJ in some cases. And again, that's a normal thing, right? There's a back and forth to, to the real investigative relationship. But we were we were very aggressive in, in how we investigated and the methods and techniques we used for Clinton. Contrary to a lot of misconception, we issued a ton of subpoenas. We issued and obtained and served multiple search warrants. I mean, this was not something where we were just kind of saying, you know, mother, may I pretty please? And a lot of that came about as a result of some uh, robust discussion and debate between the FBI and DOJ about what we should do. But in any case, you know, in a, an abundance of to be thorough and complete Every single piece of information we found that might be classified was sent out to every single organization in the US government that might own it and asked: A, is this classified? B, at what level? And C, you know, get, provide a, a classification authority to provide a statement saying, you know, here's here's my determination about the classification and whether or not we could use it at trial.
0: And when you say C there, do you mean the third item in a list, Pete, or do you mean <laughs> I do. in this?
1: Yes, in this case, I do. <laughs> but you know, the the thing was too that a lot of this, the overwhelming amount of this material was at the lowest level, at the confidential level. That was a lot of the sort of things that, you know, there might be a call sheet where she was going to reach out to a foreign, you know, a notable, you know, foreign dignitary government official and to wish them happy birthday or condolences on the death of a family member or best wishes for, you know, recovery after leaving the hospital. I'm making, you know, these are made up examples in some cases, but they weren't the kind of thing that you see in the Trump indictment where there are these highly classified top secret documents containing a lot of information in particular about DOD operations. But going back to Clinton, the, there were some items that were classified at the top secret level and they haven't been declassified. And it is hard for me to discuss them because of my inability to talk about what they are. But I guess the the best way for me to, to, to explain Why that TS material was there is that there was a particular need for Clinton to receive information and recommendations and make decisions in a timely way that State Department IT and communication systems did not allow her to do in in, in any other different way that would be fast enough. And when you look and you say, well, she still shouldn't have done it. Then if the question is, okay, if you're looking to prosecute and if you're looking to say, okay, what would the harm to national security be by disclosure of this information? It is very hard to look at that element of the crime and say, had they waited or done what they had to do to get it through the official channels, that harm to national security would have been even greater. So uh, that's a very obtuse way of saying, again, going back to Director Comey's July 5th speech, it was certainly things that there were certainly things that should not have been done. There were certainly things that might cause somebody to have administrative sanction for you know spillage of classified information or placing information in in classified information in places it shouldn't have been. But there's a difference between saying. You're going to be, you know, have an administrative punishment or a letter of censure or, you know, a suspension or have your clearance suspended. There is a world of difference between that, which happens on a daily basis in the US intelligence community, and the decision to say this is criminally negligent to the point that the United States has traditionally brought charges. And that th- there's a huge difference there. And everybody's saying, well, you know, the government said she did nothing wrong. No. The government didn't say that. The government doesn't say things like that. Publicly, what the government says is we're going to charge or we're not going to charge as to whether or not there's any sort of administrative process where somebody did something wrong. That's why you get, you know, IGs and inspection divisions and internal affairs and folks like
0: that. All right. So uh, let's go on to the next category of difference that Roger identifies, which is you've already sort of touched on, Pete, which is were these documents used for official purposes, so Roger, give us a summary of the comparison in this regard.
2: Well, again, yes, uh, Pete just mentioned that all all of these were use, uh, Hillary's were used for government purposes. Um, there was no attempt to send them to take them out of the uh, to to show them to non-government to unauthorized people,
0: except in the sense that the network itself was, uh, I mean, it was, I wouldn't say a virtual Mar-a-Lago, but it's a, it was an off-site, not controlled by the government, controlled by a private company, this, uh, I forget something, Platte, Platte Valley Networks or something. Platte River. And it was, Platte River, and it was administered by a Non cleared individual, right? So, I, I mean, it's not Mar a Lago, it's not on a stage in front of all the guests, but it's not exactly government, a, a government facility either.
2: No, but what she said and what they could not disprove was that she didn't know it had classified material. Yeah, you would not want to classify classified material on this private. Server. I mean, to place it on this private server run by Platte River, but she there was no evidence that she knew she was doing that. Uh, So, so that's the distinction. Trump was taking documents that he did know the government had created, that he did know were classified at the highest levels, and was taking them all out of the proper. Secured context And taking them to his Golf club or to his Resorts and so Every single document was being Mishandled in that respect And then we in addition We do have these two Incidents where that are Alleged in the indictment where he Apparently showed National defense uh, Information To unauthorized people One one in uh, you know, this meeting in July 2021 that was apparently recorded with the uh, two people from Mark Meadows' uh, book uh, project and uh, at least two aides. And then uh, another uh, meeting in uh, either August or September of 2021 with a a member of a a PAC, also not without a security clearance. And so uh, that's I counted that as uh, uh, five instances of showing this to to using using these documents for a non governmental purpose and showing them to uh, unauthorized people.
0: So the the equivalent, if if you were to make Trump's behavior correcting for it's a physical golf club, not a virtual uh, uh, off-site computer server. But if you were going to make Trump's behavior as innocent as Hillary's, you'd have to describe a fact pattern in which he only did it while he was in office. He brought some documents, not knowing they were classified, or some staff brought documents to Mar-a-Lago to show him for decisions and that sort of thing. And he never showed them to any unauthorized people at Mar-a-Lago. Would that be roughly describing in physical space what what Clinton is alleged to have done in virtual space?
2: I uh, I, th- I think so. I'm uh, having a little trouble holding that in my head. But um, I think that uh, That's right. In in fact, I I think there was, when the mid-year exam group was looking at prior examples of of this sort of conduct, they were trying to look, was there anything, had anybody been prosecuted that uh, under this gross negligence standard, there were instances of people where people... Uh, somebody brought something home by accident and then discovered they had it and didn't bring it back. But I don't think there was anything that was a, as innocent as what Hillary's appeared to be that, uh, that where she just, at, at least you couldn't prove that she ever knew it was classified.
1: Yeah, and Ben, I think I'd, I'd add one more part to your sort of like trying to to lay up the scenarios for comparison Like, look, Clinton voluntarily provided the majority of the information to uh, both Congress and the Department of State uh, voluntarily very quickly. You know, in the course of our investigation, you know, we started digging deeper and, you know, we identified sort of the fact that there were, there wasn't just one server, right? There were an evolution of servers. I don't think, you know, initially the Clinton camp knew that until we were diving in and interviewing people and it started out one server in Chappaqua and it moved to, you know, something that was uh, hosted externally, at a, you know, as you mentioned, Platte River Networks and it was maintained at a facility called Equinix in uh, New Jersey. But finding all these things, it was not, there was no obstructive behavior, right? There There was never... The FBI or the DOJ issuing a subpoena and Clinton refusing to honor it or any evidence whatsoever that they tried to hide anything. You know, Roger talks about the circumstances of which material was deleted, but that was believed to be at the time deletion of things that had already been reviewed and determined to be uh, not relevant to work. So when when you're lining up, it's important, I think, when you're lining up the you know the facts of what was maintained, when it was maintained, what the intention and knowledge was. To also say then the subsequent when the FBI and when the government then begins investigating, what is the response? And that's why you know in addition again, you know Roger points this out in his article. It isn't just a 793 charge. You have all these counts of obstruction. There is a willful decision that allegedly I am going to not respond to government lawful requests for for production, these subpoenas, and ultimately you know search warrants issued. I'm affirmatively going to take means with other people to hide material that I know that I'm not authorized to have and the government is trying to get. So you've got to think about when you're thinking about this behavior, I think it's important. You can't just think, oh, it's a mishandling, it's a mishandling. I, no, I think Clinton was a mishandling investigation for Trump. I, I think, frankly, I, I think of it much more as there's a. this is a, a, a case of alleged conspiracy to obstruct, which happens to feature classified information. So it, it's a if we're going to compare and if we're going to use that comparison as the basis to say why is one charged, why is another not, you have to think about all those shenanigans that, you know, the more than a year of games playing that Trump and his attorneys went through with the National Archives about returning this information about, you know, the limited, the, the way they did or didn't conduct searches when they were responding to the FBI or the DOJ subpoena, all that stuff you have to, that has to be incorporated into this sort of comparative or comparison effort.
0: Yeah, I would just add to that, that I don't think it's just a conspiracy to obstruct investigation. I think it's also a theft investigation, that That it's very clear from the indictment that the Justice Department believes he intentionally took this information and then obstructed efforts to get it back. And there is just no evidence that Hillary Clinton sort of intentionally absconded with a whole lot of Classified material with respect to her email. And I I think those are two sides of the same coin, but the department clearly believes that Trump stole this material. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news ad free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery,
1: and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number.
0: You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me Lawfare 20. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can Create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible you can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, All right. So this brings me to the third category in Roger's hierarchy, which you guys have both touched on a little bit. So I want to deal with with it briefly. Roger, you say that you quote the uh, mid-year exam folks saying, There was no evidence that the senders or former Secretary Clinton believed or were aware at the time that the emails contained classified information. In the absence of clear classification markings, the prosecutors determined that it would be difficult to dispute the sincerity of the witnesses' stated beliefs that the material was not classified. So, Roger... Uh, it obviously trump knows very well and is on tape saying that he knows that at least some of this material was classified uh, so the trump side of this is easy but i want to push you both on this hillary clinton jake sullivan these you know who was hillary clinton's chief of staff and is now the national security advisor these are sophisticated actors in the in the classification hierarchy do you think it's plausible that they were naively emailing around classified material unknowingly?
2: Well, I think that's a question f- for Pete because he, he really weighed that he spoke to the people. I mean, yeah, I, I uh, did not just rely on the mid-year exam. I also relied on the fact that, you know, in twenty. 20- Eighteen, the Office of Inspector General did sort of a, a meta-probe of the mid-year probe and wrote a 528-page report on that. And they could find nothing wrong with the mid-year exam's conclusions on all these respects, that there was no, there was no evidence of bias or in, that it was all based on department policy, past practice, and the facts and the law. So, um, but I, I'll let Pete handle this beyond that.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm going to turn to Pete in a moment, but I, I want to foot stomp what Roger is saying here. It's not just that the this is what Midyear found. It's that Horowitz spent the better part of two years, second guessing everything that Midyear found and couldn't find fault with it. And so, and, and I don't think that anybody else has either in the sense of producing any, any evidence that the FBI missed in this regard. That said, Pete, I think a lot of people, particularly people who are used to that that scary looking picture of you that shows up all the time on Fox News, are gonna say, wait a minute, Pete Strzok says that Hillary Clinton didn't mean to do it, and Jim Comey, that famous Hillary Clinton supporter, buys it. And I'm supposed to believe that that's the end of it. Why should I believe that? And so my question to you is, what was it that was persuasive that to the extent that there was classified material on the servers that the people who put it there and the people who received it really weren't aware of that?
1: Yeah. So two parts to that to my answer. I think the first one is, you know, why should sort of the meta point of why believe me? I think the answer is, well, you know, based on a career of 20 plus years, but more than just me, you know, to Roger's point, look at this exhaustive, uh, inspector general investigation. I'll be happy if they spend a half the amount of effort on the January 6th, what happened and didn't happen as they did on mid-year. I mean, it was 36 plus months of just, you know, a, a team of dozen, you know, dozen or two investigators looking at every single thing we did, who concluded that it was appropriate. There was, you know, you might remember U.S. Attorney John Huber, who Sessions or Barr brought in to run over through all this again, just like, you know, the parade of U.S. attorneys that, you know, department brought in to try and, you know, go after things that Trump didn't like, who again, he concluded that it was a righteous investigation. You had, you know, any number of congressional or Senate inquiries that looked at it too and didn't find any indication that, you know, of wrongdoing or malfeasance. But I think, you know, at the end, and then finally, you know, this isn't. This was a team of people, right? I mean, there were, there were multiple attorneys. There were easily, you know, four on a day to day basis. Four prosecutors who worked with the team. There were dozens of agents and analysts and forensic accountants and computer specialists and everybody else. So, you know, this wasn't one person in some, you know, dark chamber somewhere in the bowels of the J Edgar Hoover Building trying to set something up. This was a very. You know, significant effort with a lot of moving parts that everybody who's looked at it in a competent way has said, no, this is a righteous investigation. I think at the end of the day, you know, to your question about like, shouldn't these people have known something? Folks need to understand the radical difference in the sort of Type of classified information we're talking about. In many cases, and Roger mentions this in his article, a lot of the people who were writing the things, you know, tried to make it unclassified by talking around issues. And you know, anybody who's been in a, a government setting is familiar with having done it. You know, that information is classified, so you try and obliquely refer to something and say, you know, we've got to make the decision about the thing that's coming up next week about the stuff over there with us. I, you know, whether or not that actually declassifies it. You know, if you have dealt with classified information as part of your job, you're kind of aware of that and it's always kind of fraught with peril. The second thing is, as a culture, the State Department was awful when you compare it to their sort of norms and expectations of handling classified information when compared with the rest of the U.S. intelligence community. Part of that's because they're dealing on a daily basis in sort of open, unclassified dialogue with foreign counterparts, right? They're dealing with their counterpart in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or the Prime Minister's office or wherever the case may be, and they're sitting at a cocktail reception or in a you know an office call or wherever the case may be discussing some position on something or another and writing it back up in a cable to Washington, D.C. And when they do that, they slap a confidential header on it because they don't want it, you know, getting out and chilling their ability to have an open and frank discussion with that person from the Prime Minister's office and of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or whatever the case may be. And that was, you know, we saw that with with Chelsea Manning's leaks. I mean, the, 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 the WikiLeaks, the the dump there, just the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of confidential State Department cables, which if you read them, you'd say, gee, well, you, you probably would swear. I'm not going to swear on this thing, but you would look at it and say, okay. I think theoretically, I understand why this is classified, but this is really not something that is you know highly sensitive and in again those cases where the the top secret stuff that Clinton had that was there in the context of i in the context of time sensitive operational necessity, where nonetheless people were trying to talk around things, and if though you were going to try and charge it proving the elements of the crime that you would have to establish would be extraordinarily difficult. Now, compare and contrast, and the people we talked to admitted that. They're like, no, we tried to talk around. I mean, this was, you know, Clinton and Jake Sullivan and Cheryl Mills and all these folks. You know, no, I, you know, we, we thought, I I'd never thought that was classified. I thought I had talked around it in a way that it wasn't. There, there there were people who were honestly with a straight face, you know, other than a couple of instances like that little, what does C mean to you? Or, you know, a little bit of an eye roll. For the most part, people had very compelling and, you know, and whether or not compelling from a prosecutorial perspective, the issue isn't so much whether or not it's compelling as can you present evidence beyond a reasonable doubt to a unanimous jury that the person knew they shouldn't have done it and or that they were lying to, the, to the, the government when they said, oh, I thought I talked around it. And again, that's a really, whatever you know kind of eye rolls or, oh, I don't know about that, might've been an investigator's mind. There's a huge gap between that sort of, uh, all the way up to this hits the standard in the US Attorney's Manual for when a case should be brought. Now, compare that to the Trump documents as best we can understand them from the indictment. We're talking about top secret information, For the most part, I mean, some secret in there too. We're talking about war plans. We're talking about information with the Department of Energy, which we don't know, but you know very well may relate to nuclear weapons. Certainly, formally restricted data refers to information governed by the Atomic Energy Act, which is you know can be non-nuclear weapon type information, but likely refers to nuclear weapons. But again, war plans these are just not they, they are not in any way, shape, or form analogous. Just on the face of what the information is, not even taking into consideration what he did with it, who he shared it with, why he kept it, what he obstructed about it. Just the information itself is radically different and grossly, grossly worse in the case of, in, in terms of the, the potential harm to national security on the part of what Trump took compared to what Clinton had.
2: These C's that we're talking about, the paren C, N paren that means confidential, these were found on, and I forget if it was, either three emails or three email chains out of, you know, 47,000, the 30,000 plus the 17,000. And they were interior, you know, t- on an interior paragraph. And then, as Pete said, the State Department was n- not able to determine uh, that in any of these three cases, it, it, it was properly Confidential at the time that it was sent.
0: Right. So the final category that Roger you identify here is not not merely knowledge of that the information was classified, but specific warning that it was classified. So walk us through what you did here.
2: Yes. Uh, in other words, uh, it's not just circumstantial evidence that you know you 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 possess these boxes full of. Marked classified documents, the question was, did anyone ever tell you you should be concerned because these are classified? And of course, in Hillary's case, there was no such warning at the time, and uh, in in Trump's case, you you probably had you know scores of warnings, but i I only counted two, which were a subpoena. You know, saying hand over all the classified documents—that's a warning. And and then there was also a letter that's referred to in the uh, search warrant affidavit, where I think Jay Bratt is telling him, "Look, you possess—we our information is you possess classified documents, and they're not properly being stored, and you need to return them, and you re- need to return them now." So that was two additional ways that I counted in my seven hundred and three.
0: So, Pete, I want to go back to something that Rogers says at the beginning of the article, which is that relatively early in the investigation, you guys figured out that if there was going to be any charge, it was not going to be on anything related to uh, intent, it was going to be, or, you know, intentional mishandling, it was going to be on this gross negligence point. And I want to bring out a couple of aspects of that. The the first of them is, is it true that you guys figured out really early that there was no intentional misconduct going on here? Because that seems to me, at a basic metal level, really different from the Trump situation.
1: Look, I don't know that I'd say really early. I would certainly say by the beginning of 2016, we started to have a fairly good idea that the, the, we had the, the bulk of the universe of the information, the emails that she had sent. And the concern we always had was, okay, you know, we wanted to see the pre, she had her team sort all her emails because and again she she was a technical luddite right i mean she did not have a computer on her desk at state department she had a blackberry that she learned to use that she liked to have one device where she could get everything whether it was a you know a personal email whether it's a work email she wanted one place she could go half the documents we had were her forwarding emails to huma saying please print because she wanted to read it on a written form rather than staring at the blackberry screen so you know this was not something where you know there was a, a, a technically or technologically complex person working a bunch of systems. And this bulk of information that our attorneys went through and sorted through what was work, what was non-work, and provided the work material to the Department of State and, and Congress, our question was always, okay, well, what, what was the pre-sort body, right? Was there Were there any shenanigans in there where they deleted material that they shouldn't have that was actually really damning classified information? But part of what we did, again, remember, we went out not just from what Clinton gave us and then what we found that Clinton maintained, but we went to every single U.S. government agency, each and every one, and said, please provide any, inf- any email that you have any of your employees ever sent or received or were CC'd or BCC'd containing these Clinton email addresses. So in the overwhelming number of emails, we had multiple copies of that, right? We had, say we had the copy that Clinton provided us that was sent to her. Well, we also ended up with a State Department copy from the person who was the sender. We also ended up with two copies from DOD from the people that were CC'd on it. So, I mean, it was a technical kind of pain in the butt because for each email, we ended up frequently with two, four, six, eight copies of the same email that we had to deduplicate. But what's important there is think of it. There is no email unless you're sending it to yourself. And we didn't see any evidence of that. There is no email that does not have at a minimum two parties involved. And if you forward that on and you get changed, you very quickly get multiple episodes or multiple instances of that email. What we didn't find though was something where it's like, oh, look, there's this really highly sensitive or classified email that we got from the White House or CIA or State Department, whoever it was, that we didn't get from Clinton. In other words, it was clear that there did not appear to be any sort of effort on the part of her team to hide or destroy information that she was bound by, you know, obliged to turn over to the Department of State. So, you know, I, I think that's a very long way to say, and we knew that probably, I don't know the exact time frame, but certainly towards the end of 2015, the beginning of 2016. We started to have a real good sense that that was true, right that they were not hiding something that right. there wasn 't this large body of material that had been intentionally deleted Now we still wanted to get and ultimately did after a lot of wrangling um, the actual laptops that her attorneys used to sort those emails and eventually did review those and you know to one thing i 'd note to a point Roger made early on like we had like we got a ton of information that was not work related we had a filter team easily of you know, Ford at the the height, it might've been six or seven agents and analysts who served as a filter team who were going through every single email that we recovered and making sure things that were not work-related were sort of siphoned out. And that was because we got material from Clinton's camp that was far greater than anything we ever would have been able to have legal justification to subpoena and or get via search warrant. So the long story short is by the end of 15 or early 16, we were starting to get a very good idea that we were not seeing any behavior on the part of Clinton's team that they were hiding things and or that there was material out there that had not already been produced to us. And what we saw didn't support that behavior, that information didn't support bringing a case in the way DOJ has traditionally brought cases.
0: Roger, as you uh, note in the beginning of your your piece, uh, the former president loves to talk about the destruction of laptops and acid baths and the destruction of these laptops that uh, Pete just referred to on the basis that they contained only personal information as though it were a, a clear obstruction of justice. So walk us through what really happened and what the destruction of this material actually did and didn't involve.
2: Yeah. So she leaves the state department in about February of 2013. I think the Benghazi investigation, uh, the Benghazi committee is created in about May of 2014 and they request documents from the state department I don't believe it's a subpoena at that point. They, they make document requests. The State Department looks around. They can't find Hillary's emails. And so her former chief of staff, Cheryl Mills, explains, no, she has private emails on uh, her own server. And they say, well, you need to produce all of the work-related ones from those, and you need to uh, winnow them out either you or, or, or Hillary needs to do that. That's your obligation. So Hillary has tasks, Cheryl Mills and uh, Heather Samuelson, one of her aides from the, uh, former aides from the State Department, and David Kendall of Williams and Connolly to do that culling. And uh, they devised the sort of protocol that uh, litigation attorneys use all the time to go through, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of emails. So she had more than 60,000 of them. You don't try to read them all. Uh, You uh, search for certain headers and footers and keywords. And they did that. And they called out uh, 30,000, which were work-related, and turned those over and saved those. But there were these uh, 30... Uh, 1,000 personal ones that were left on her server as well. And at sometime between November of 2014 and uh, January of 2015, she said uh, she told the man who was kept the server, Paul Combetta of the Platte River Networks company, that she wanted to go to a shorter 60 day retention period on her personal emails and at the time she said that, there was no preservation order. There was no outstanding subpoena. So nobody thinks, none of her lawyers thought there was any problem with that. None of the mid year t- exam team thought there was any problem with that. None of the uh, Office of Inspector General team thought there was any problem with that. The issue was, Combetta did not do it when he was supposed to do it. And then, on March 2nd of 2015, the New York Times published an article saying that Hillary may have used a private server while at the state department, and that might break rules. So the next day, March 3rd, the Benghazi committee sends a preservation order. And then the next day there is a subpoena for her uh, uh, Benghazi emails. And at some point later in March, Combetta later tells investigators he had a quote, Oh shit moment when he realized that he had not gotten rid of the, the 30,000 emails that were older than 60 days. And he on his own, despite the preservation order secretly destroys them using an off the shelf product called Bleachbit. Uh, bleach bit. Um, it's a software product. And the investigators uh, ultimately find that out from uh Kumbeta after I th- they give him use immunity and uh the judgment was that uh, when he said that uh, his what he said was uh, fit with the forensics it fit with the other uh, testimony and uh they believed him uh, but obviously this was uh, this was something that according to all everyone involved Cheryl Mills didn't know about and and Heather Samuelson never knew about and 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 Clinton was out of this loop by then uh, you know the, uh, so that's what he's talking about with the so-called acid wash there was no acid wash uh,
0: this was the, the- there was a software bleach wash exactly all right so Pete he- this is the kind of story that gives rise to conspiracy theories and in fact it has of course the 30,000 emails that were deleted uh albeit not with an acid wash are the ones that Donald Trump is talking about when he says Russia if you're listening I hope you can find the 30,000 emails which are missing uh they are you know the subject that Peter Smith tries to, you know, hire Russian hackers to uh, recover. Uh, they give rise to all kinds of crazy stuff, uh, and the reason I think is that first of all, material was deleted, and secondly, the story that Hillary orders it deleted before. There's any legal problem with doing so. The guy forgets to do it. He then does it after there's a subpoena when he has a holy shit moment. And then he gets immunity for it is actually, it actually has a kind of conspiracy vibe to it. And it's the kind of thing that in other circumstances, you'd be really skeptical of. And so my question is, what was it that made you guys look at this fact pattern and say, yeah, Cambetta seems to be telling the truth. It's not pretty, but there's no evidence of obstruction here.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that was one of the last big decisions and one of the last questions about whether or not there had been anything illegal that was done on uh, the Clinton team. And so some of it, look, there, so the basic allegation is exactly as Roger sort of laid out, this material was deleted after we found, figured out forensically that it had been deleted after I think it was the congressional um, subpoena went out. And so the question is, you know, why? And who did it then? Because this clearly Clinton's and Clinton's attorneys and team were aware of that subpoena when it was issued. Now, it was deleted after that. And there are going to be a very small handful of people who know why. Certainly Paul Combetta and potentially a coworker, but Combetta on the one hand. And then two, if he had been instructed to do it, the people who instructed him to do so to obstruct this, you know, sort of production. And those were we found that traditionally it were people, you know, within the the Clinton organization, and in particular the attorneys who dealt with uh, PRN with Platte River and the folks there. And so the question was, okay, in the worst case, somebody like. You know, Cheryl Mills or you know, David Kendall or somebody on the team told him after the subpoena, go delete it. They are not going to tell us you know however good of an interviewer we are, however you know many Columbo tricks we might try and pull out of our bag. they're not going to suddenly this team is too good legally and too smart to suddenly break down by some you know interview stratagem that catches them in a lie. and so the question was, okay, Combetta knows because he's the guy who did it. And we're seeing things that it doesn't make a lot of sense that that he was instructed to do it, but it was like, all right, so how do we do it? You know, if if in case, you know whatever the variety of motivations why he did it, when he did it, you know, he told us initially one thing, and that the didn't appear to be true. And I forget the details of exactly what he said when, but ultimately it was like, all right, this case is not to jam Paul Cabetta on a 1001 charge of lying to the FBI. The purpose of this investigation is to figure out what Hillary Clinton was or was not doing with classified information on her server and her knowledge of what was done in the production of that information to the Department of State. And so that would decision and that, you know, DOJ offers immunity. I agreed with the decision. You know, the goal is get combetta in there. Tell them, you know, you're not going to get charged with this. We're going to give you a limited immunity or, you know, I forget all the different types of immunity. I get there several and I get the terms confused for levels. But essentially, tell us what happened. You know, come clean and we'll, you know, give you give you this limited immunity. And so he did. And that's when he said, yeah, I, I effed up. I had this oh shit moment. They told me to do it earlier before the subpoena existed. I forgot to do it. I heard about it. I had an oh shit moment and I went and ran and I did it and it's my fault. And so then it was like, okay, that, that makes sense. That is consistent with all of the forensic evidence that we have. That is consistent with all of the communications we have between Clinton's camp and PRN and Combetta. That is consistent with all of the statements from the Clinton camp. So again, you know, Occam's razor, the most logical common sense explanation is borne out by the statement. And to people who are like, well, you should have charged Combetta. I, I don't think so. He probably would not have told us that absent this offer of grants of immunity and then would be sitting there because nobody's going to sit there voluntarily and say yes you know we lied to you and actually we did tell him to delete it after the subpoena so the way to get to that information about the core critical person that we were investigating was through this grant of immunity and guess what once we did that human nature he came clean and gave us you know, information that was entirely consistent with every other single investigative piece of information that we had developed.
0: If Sean Hannity were here, Pete, he would say, you gave him immunity and he fell on his sword for Hillary Clinton and gave you precisely the answer that she would want him to give you. Why are you confident that that's not what happened?
1: Because there are forensic logs of what he did to the data when there are communications records with internal PRN emails that we saw. There are emails between the Clinton camp and Paul Cabetta. There are emails within the Clinton team about what to do or not do. There is discussion that, you know, we had from each of these people in the context of their interviews and every single one of those hundreds of pieces of data all line up and all are consistent with the explanation that Paul Combetta gave including you know that what, what he was saying and doing with his colleagues that we also interviewed so it's not just like one you know convenient Paul Combetta is the fall guy no his story has to be consistent with these 100 plus other data points for it to be accurate this isn't you know people that everybody likes to play you know basement you know investigator because they watched you know the rockford files back in the day the fact of the matter is if you're gonna like if you do a thorough complete investigation if you're gonna pull off the crime of the century you have to check so many boxes and the conspiracy has to be so vast and so complete and so rock solid as you you start getting into the you know impossible to maintain in the face of a Solid, credible, and aggressive investigation that we had, so uh, you know it isn't just Paul, it isn't just Paul saying one thing to take the fall. it is interviews, forensic records, just every again, every piece of data we had is consistent with him saying, they told me to do it, I forgot to do it, I fucked up, and so I went, and when I had my oh shit moment, I went and did it, and you know hoped they wouldn't be too bad or whatever he said.
0: We are going to leave it there. Pete Struck, Roger Parloff, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, thanks, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Folks, I know... There are tens of thousands of you out there who are still listening to ads on this podcast because you have not become material supporters of Lawfare. And I'm here to say, we got two problems. They have one solution. You can get rid of the ads and we can get support for Lawfare if you go to patreon.com slash lawfare and sign up to be a material supporter Every little bit helps. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.